sermon text for today is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? I don't know if some husbands and wives might relate to this scenario here, but often I try to find things in the refrigerator, like milk, ketchup, eggs, but they simply go missing. And However, as soon as I call my wife and ask her, have you seen the milk, the ketchup, or the eggs, suddenly they appear. It's like magic. Unexplainable. Am I alone here? Gentlemen, do you understand the struggle? Right. I say this jokingly, but there is an interesting parallel here with the spiritual world. Often, our inability to see spiritual realities will have nothing to do with their visibility. Spiritual blindness is a condition, but our ability to perceive the hand of God at work does not nullify the fact that God is at work. The work of God is only perceived once God shines His own light into the spiritually blinded heart. Just as God initiated the physical creation of the universe by saying, let there be light, the spiritual recreation of our souls and the removal of our spiritual blindness depends on a God who says, let there be light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Spiritual blindness is only overcome when we move our eyes from ourselves and our circumstances and look to Christ. Now, if you remember, 
where we have been in the past few weeks, Jesus went through a tour of Gentile territory. He has been teaching his Jewish disciples that God loves the nations. These disciples that were taught from birth to believe that Gentiles were dogs now are witnessing the compassion of Jesus towards the nation. Jesus went with his disciples to the region of Tyre and Sidon. We saw that that is modern-day Lebanon, where he met the Phoenician woman. The woman who had a daughter who was plagued by evil spirits. Since the woman was a Gentile, she did not presume on the grace of Christ. So she asked him to eat the crumbs in his table. And because of her humble faith, Jesus answered the request and healed her daughter. After that, Jesus went to the region of Decapolis, meaning ten cities, a predominantly Gentile region east of the Sea of Galilee. There he performed many miracles, but Mark only highlights one, the healing of a mute deaf man. Mark wanted us to see that healing that came from Jesus had come to display his power, and to bring salvation again to the nation. Last week, we saw Jesus in the same region of Decapolis. There, out of compassion, he fed the 4,000. We had seen a few chapters ago that Jesus fed the 5,000 men. But now, he goes Gentile territory and feeds the nation. He didn't just give them crumbs from his table. He fed them until they were satisfied. He provided for their needs beyond their expectations. And there was an abundance of leftovers. At the end of our passage last week, we're told that Jesus then departed to the district of Dalmanusa. Now, this is back in the region of Galilee. And in the Gospel of Mark, this is his last time in Galilee. We've seen Jesus go all over this region almost without direction, in our eyes, without direction. But starting next week, Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem. And we're going to see his great determination to go towards the cross. Dominusa is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And actually, in, in literature in general, Dominusa is a pretty obscure place. But the Gospel of Matthew actually helps us know where Dalmanusa is. This was a district that was very close to Capernaum, where Jesus, where Jesus had his headquarters, where Jesus lived in Peter's house. And he was likely in the vicinity of a place called Magdala, 
which is where Mary of Magdalene was filmed. Jesus and his disciples were making their way back to Capernaum one last time. As we come to our text today, we see two groups of men interacting with Jesus. Both groups experienced spiritual blindness, the blindness of the soul. The first group was Jesus, were Jesus' greatest opponents, the Pharisees. The second group were Jesus' closest friends, his disciples. But what is interesting in this passage is that Jesus rebukes both groups for their spiritual blindness, but the rebuke given to each group is not equal. They were not evenly given to both groups. No, to the Pharisees. Jesus' rebuke came in the form of condemnation. But to his disciples, to his own, Jesus' rebuke came in the form of compassion. So as we turn to our text today, these two words are going to guide us. Condemnation and compassion. Jesus' condemning rebuke and Jesus' compassionate rebuke. So let us consider first Jesus' condemning rebuke. In verse 11, Jesus and his disciples presumably step out of the boat and they are met immediately by the Pharisees. These were relentless men. They would not leave Jesus alone. The account in Matthew adds that along with the Pharisees, there came the Sadducees. These are the two religious groups that are highlighted primarily in the New Testament. Pharisees and Sadducees were very different. Pharisees were more of the fundamentalist type, while the Sadducees were more of the liberal type. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They had a loose understanding of God's word. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were very devoted to every letter in the word of God. And yet, both groups view Jesus as enemies. It's interesting, isn't it? That sometimes polar opposites will come together to oppose the truth. That sometimes groups that have nothing in common will come together to oppose Christ. We're told that the Pharisees came to Jesus in order to argue, argue with him. Your translation of the Bible may say that they came to Jesus in order to question him. That's not the better translation. Argue is the right word. You notice even in the text that their purpose was to test him, to test Christ, to prove him wrong. They were not inquiring whether Jesus was the Messiah from God. They wanted to prove that he was not. Friends, not everyone who seeks Jesus seeks him 
genuinely. And I think this has been the demise of the seeker-friendly movement that we saw in the past decades. It's assuming that anyone who comes to seek or inquire about Christ comes with a desire to be born again, to be changed, to be transformed, to be regenerated. Notice what the Pharisees do here. They seek Jesus, but they want Jesus to satisfy their own personal desires. They want Jesus to satisfy their curiosity. The Jesus that they want is a Jesus that gives away a sign at their command. Jesus that they want is a Jesus that responds to every demand. And this Jesus better give them a sign from heaven. The Pharisees wanted a God who is willing to submit to their will. A God that made sense to them. A God that played by their rules. A God who is under their authority. But the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus is under no one's authority but himself. They asked Jesus for a sign, and a sign from heaven. For the Pharisees, Satan was able to do some miracles. Remember back in chapter 3 that they come and they accuse Jesus of doing what, he's do, what he does by the power of the God of the flies, Beelzebub. Remember the account of Moses. As he lays down Aaron's rod, the magicians from Egypt are able to recreate that sign. So the Pharisees understood that many people could do signs. But in their understanding, some signs were unmistakably from God. And that's what they wanted. But wait a second. What more do they need? Jesus has healed the most devastating diseases in public. He has multiplied the food in front of large multitudes, he has cast out demons in the synagogue, in the presence of many. He has even raised the dead. What else do they need? Did they want a sign from heaven? Well, remember Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1? One of the most public events in the life of Jesus Mark tells us back then that all of Jerusalem and all of Judea had come out to the river Jordan. And as Jesus comes up from the waters, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove and a voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. What other sign from heaven could they possibly need? Friends, the reality is that for the unbelieving heart, no amount of evidence of the gospel will ever be enough. 
Why? Because it is not evidence that leads us to belief. God is not opposed to giving signs. The Gospel of Luke fills in the story a little bit more. He tells us that Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation except for one sign. So Jesus says, you will receive the sign of Jonah. Luke eleven thirty two, the parallel accounts, the men of Nineveh, he's saying to the same group of Pharisees, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, the preaching of Jonah was enough for the men of Nineveh, wicked, unregenerate Gentiles to repent. But when the Son of God himself preaches, this generation of Pharisees hardens their hearts. Nineveh did not need a sign from Jonah. The word of God was enough. But this generation refuses the word of Christ. And friends, when we refuse the word of Christ, no sign will ever be enough. No miracle we witness will ever be enough. Remember the rich man talking to Father Abraham, saying, send Lazarus up so that my brothers will not come to this place. And what does Father Abraham say to them? Your brothers, have, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. Even if I send a dead man back to life, they will not believe unless they believe the word of God. They would never come to faith even with more signs from Jesus because they refuse the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Frank Turek is a Christian apologist. This means he defends the Christian faith in the public square. I enjoy watching his videos, he uploads them often to YouTube. I heard him once ask a college student the following question, if you knew beyond a shadow of doubt that Christianity is true, would you believe it? And the student said, no. The student is not pursuing truth. The student is pursuing to feel comfortable in his own sin. Why? It's because hearts that are hardened towards God are not looking for evidence to believe. They're looking for excuses to remain in their sin. An unregenerate person will not find God for the same reason why a thief will not find a police officer. Why? Why are they so afraid? Because God will reveal their true nature. So how, what do we do when we come into contact with a hardened heart? What do we do when we come into contact with someone that says, I will not believe? Friends, we don't rest on our eloquence. We don't rest on our knowledge, our ability to argue. We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel and we pray 
for regeneration. Because when the gospel meets an unregenerate heart, it will not produce fruit. But when the gospel meets a heart that has been regenerated by the Spirit, it will produce fruit every time without exception. Friend, if you're here with us today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you may sympathize with Christ, you may enjoy the church, but you do not believe in His finished work for you. Remember that you do not stand as a judge over God. God is the judge of the living and the dead. God is the judge over you. Do not demand anything from God. Remember that there is a right way to seek God and there is a wrong way to seek God. Do not be found in the ways of the Pharisees. They sought God, but they never found Him. They sought God with a hardened heart. But Jesus gives hope even to the hardened heart. The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the message that Jesus came to transform hard hearts. The gospel is the message that God is the one who removes the heart of stone and gives us the heart of flesh that is able to believe if you reject Jesus because of the sin in your heart. You will never find hope. But the gospel tells us that Jesus died for our sins. He paid the penalty we deserve on the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God the Father that should have been on us. So what we need is not a sign. What you need is to repent and believe. And once you repent and believe, everything you see will be a sign from God of His goodness, of His compassion, and of His kindness. So listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is the sign you need. You need, a sign, you need the sign of a transformed heart. And friends, I promise you, if your heart is transformed by Christ, you will be overwhelmed with signs that Jesus is true and He loves you and He's here to save you. We see in verse 13 that Jesus leaves the Pharisees. This is the worst picture one can ever see. The backside of Jesus walking away. He leaves the Pharisees. He does not entertain them. He gets into the boat and crosses the lake again. So now let us consider our second point, Jesus' compassionate rebuke. Now, although Jesus, rebuke, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, and in doing so, he condemns them for their hardness of heart, for their unbelief, his rebuke to his disciples in the boat is designed to strengthen them. The compassionate rebuke of Christ is designed to sanctify his own. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 my son, do not despise the Lord's 
discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. A rebuke from God in the life of a believer is a demonstration of his compassion. God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. Instead, he rebukes us. When a believer receives a rebuke from God, the rebuke is designed to produce perseverance. Notice in verse 14 that the disciples begin to doubt the provision of God. They forget to bring bread with them in the boat, and they only have one loaf left. Thirteen men and one loaf of bread. Once again, Mark brings back the theme of bread. Remember we said last week that Mark is here developing a theology of bread, a, a theology that, that, that evolves around bread. And why is this theology of bread so important here? What is Mark trying to show us? Mark wants us to know and be reminded that bread reminds us of our constant need for provision. But bread also reminds us of our constant need for the provider. So when Jesus sees their concern, he preemptively warns them in verse 15. Jesus says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisee and the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is a kind of naturally occurring sourdough bread started, starter. In other words, it's a kind of like a natural yeast. It's used to raise the dough. You don't need a lot of leaven to make a lot of bread. Now, I may not know a lot about cars and radio waves and coding, as a lot of you guys do, but I do know a lot about bread, okay, and I'm proud of that. I've developed my own bread recipe through trial and error, and I will say this modestly, it's pretty good, okay? But in my bread recipe, for every 1,000 grams of flour, all that you need is 7 grams of yeast. It's a very small ratio, 7 to 1,000. But when you start this bread recipe, in no time you can see that the yeast takes over the entire dough. Not only does a little bit of yeast take over the entire dough, a sourdough line, once started, exists for a long time if kept properly. There are some sourdough lines that are century old, centuries old. Some are over or have existed for millennia. In 2019... American physicist Seamus Blakely was able to extract a sourdough starter from an Egyptian excavation site. And the sourdough starter was over 4,500 years old, over 4,000 years old. It is possible that the people of Israel ate this bread when they were in Egypt. After a few attempts, he was able to create a living sourdough starter 
And he went on to make bread from this ancient bread lie. Once leaven meets flour and water, it is impossible to separate them. And once that starts, that could live for a long time. The relationship between flour, water, and yeast is fascinating. And Jesus is here using this illustration as a warning to his disciples. Here's what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees, they're completely corrupt. We know that. We've seen that. But a little bit of their corruption, if that comes into contact with you, that will corrupt you completely. A little bit of, a little bit of ease takes over the whole dough. A little bit of unbelief endangers the whole person. Jesus names two groups here that his disciples ought to be careful not to emulate. Two groups that don't normally go together. The Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees, we've been talking about today, were a sect of zealous and legalistic Jewish leaders. The Herodians, however, were Jews who supported Herod and his dynasty. They supported the Roman system. They were nothing alike other than the fact that they were Jews. And they had nothing in common. But you may remember that we've already seen these two groups come together back in Mark 3, verse 6. Jesus had declared himself Lord of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees and the Herodians come together to plot Jesus' assassination. So clearly, this odd couple is only brought together by their opposition to Christ. But Jesus brings them up as a warning against his disciples because these odd couple, this odd couple, they bring together two extremes, the religious and the secular. And both things are dangerous. Both groups are characterized by their selfishness. They think of themselves first. Pharisees want to maintain their earthly religion. And the Herodians want to maintain their earthly government. But both groups are earthbound. Both groups are earthly minded. Listen to how the Apostle Paul warns against such mentality. Philippians 3.18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. You see that here? They're so concerned about the bread. They're so concerned about their belly. They're so concerned about their own sustenance. And, Jesus, and Paul is saying, their God, those who oppose Christ, they worship their own bellies. Their God is their belly and be bellies, and their glory, they, they glory in their shame with mind set on earthly things. 
But Jesus does not want his disciples to be characterized by earthly minds. He wants them to think of the things that are above. Jesus wants his disciples to have their minds undivided, not in earthly things, but in the heavenly realities. Jesus does not want even a little bit of earthliness in his disciples. He wants them to live on the second half of the passage that Paul puts in front of us, where Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. That's what our provision comes from. That's where our provider comes from, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. Do you see the heavenly reality? By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to himself. Friends, this is what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. Wait the deliverance of Christ because ultimately your citizenship does not belong to this temporal earth. Your citizenship belongs to eternal heaven. Wait for his provision. Wait for his deliverance. Have the mind of Christ. The disciples don't understand how Jesus wants them to think. So, in verse 16, they go back to their, to their discouragement about the lack of bread. You may be asking yourself, how silly can these disciples be? Jesus multiplied bread for, a thousand, for thousands of people, not just once, but twice. Both times the disciples doubted Jesus' ability to provide for the crowds. And now, here they are again. Literally, at the same boat, doubting Jesus' ability to provide. Why are the disciples so silly? If Jesus could provide food for the thousands, can't he provide food for the twelve? Is anything too difficult for Christ, have you not yet learned who Christ is? Well, friend, have you ever doubted Jesus' love and care towards you? Have you ever doubted his ability or his willingness to supply your every need? Have you? Have you ever doubted that? Have you ever been in the boat with the disciples? The doubting boat. Well, here's one more question. Has Jesus ever failed you? Have you ever lacked bread? Isn't the fact that you're here today a testament to the faithfulness of Christ? No, we will not experience the abundances of heaven in this life. But hasn't God met our every need? Now notice what Jesus does here in verse 17. He overwhelms the disciples with a series of questions. What are you discuss Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened, have, uh, having eyes? Do you not see and having ears? Do you not hear? And do you not remember? You, you know, and this is the reason why we read such a long passage out of, out of Job this morning. That's the same thing that God does with Job. After Job wrestles with God and wrestles with God, God is silent. 
And finally, in chapter 38, God speaks. And he says to Job, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, what do you know? What do you know about the provision that I have always made for you, Job? And Job's response, Oh Lord, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I promise you, I promise you, if in heaven you go up to Job and you ask Job, Job, was all the suffering that you went through in life worth it? Job would say, every single minute that the heavy hand of the Lord was on me, every single second was worth it. Why, Job? Oh, friend, because before I had heard of the Lord, but after I suffered in his hand and I heard from him, my eyes saw him. And this is what Jesus is doing with the disciples here. He's overwhelming them with questions. He's saying, are you like the Pharisees? Are you like those who witness my power and still doubt me? But the good news is that Jesus doesn't stop at the fifth question. He asks one more set of questions. But these questions are different. These questions are not pressing against the disciples to overwhelm them. And, the, and these questions are not designed to rebuke. These questions are designed to recall the past faithfulness of Christ towards them. Listen to the questions that start in verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. One basket per disciple. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. The perfect number. Jesus is saying, every time I fed the multitudes, you received an abundance of food. Why are you fretting over bread? Why are you concerned for your provision? Why are you concerned about earthly things? The Lord of the universe, who has provided for you all along, is in this boat with you. What could you possibly lack? And this is how God works with His children. God reminds us of His past faithfulness in order to build our present faith and to guarantee our future glory. So yes, we ought to count our blessings. Yes, we ought to remember the faithfulness of the Lord and we must not forget all His benefits. Brothers and sisters, if you're struggling to trust God in the present for whatever circumstance you may be going through in your life, remind, recall to mind the faithfulness of the Lord. The perseverance of the believer depends completely on the past faithfulness of the Lord. If He was faithful in the past, He will be faithful in the present, and He will be faithful in the, in the future. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised past is faithful, present. The promises of God fulfilled in the past assure us of his present faithfulness. 
Friend, if you're here with us and you have not yet come to Christ, friend, do not let the sermon be a condemning rebuke to you. Do not approach Jesus like the Pharisees, doubting without faith. Do not come to Jesus demanding anything of Him. Instead, come to Jesus with humility. Come to Jesus with brokenness. Instead of demanding anything of Jesus, offer Him your repentance and your confession. Recognize that you have not placed your trust in Him. You have doubted His goodness. Recognize that you have not lived a life of faith resting in His work for you. You know, it's interesting. This boat, we've seen so many times. You notice that the boat is referred to as the boat. We keep coming back to it. This boat has been a symbolic sign of the ministry of Christ throughout the Gospel of Mark. This boat has faced storms, winds, raging seas. It has gone all over the Sea of Galilee. The Pharisees we met earlier are physically safe ashore, and the disciples at the mercy of this small fisherman's boat. But this boat has been special all along. Why? Because Jesus is in the boat. At times we can trust the appearance of safety, like the Pharisees, but it is better to be in the vulnerable boat with Christ than anywhere else. This boat symbolizes union with Christ, but it is not only in the boats that we can find ourselves united with Christ. It is through His life, His righteous life that becomes ours by faith. On the cross, our sins are pinned through His hands and we can be crucified with Christ and we can no longer live ourselves, but we can live in Him. We can be united with Christ through His Spirit, which lives in us and which seals us for eternal life. Friend, if you're not in Christ, none of these benefits are yours. If you're not in Christ, you're earthly-minded, and you will never experience eternal life with Him. But if you turn to Christ, if you enter the boat, if you join His life, His mission, His ministry, join His church, His people, if you come to Jesus, yes, with questions, with doubts, but confessing your sins and confessing your weakness and confessing your rebellion towards Him, you may sometimes wonder if you will have enough bread. You may sometimes wonder if you have enough provision. But you will never be far from Jesus and from His soft, kind, gentle answer come to me he will save you he will rescue you he will redeem you jesus last questions to his disciple in verse 20 21 says this do you not yet understand so i leave you with this question do you not yet understand the gospel 
Do you not yet understand that Jesus lived, died, that he was buried, and that he rose so that you can live not with the hope of earthly things, not concerned with your earthly provision, but so you can believe in him and live the hope of eternal life and live with that hope in your heart. Oh, friend, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you. Our propensities to be hardened towards you. Even once we've been enlightened, we can doubt like the disciples did. Is this going to be enough? Well, Father, we need to trust that Jesus owns all things. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Father, provision is something that we will never have to ultimately worry about. Because, Father, we are going towards a land that is abundant with spiritual milk and honey. And, Lord, we know that in the Jerusalem from above, in the heavens that you promised us, Lord, we'll experience abundance. Father, we may have need in this life. But help us look to Christ. Father, I pray, Lord, for those here that don't know Christ. Lord, I pray that you would remove the blindness from their eyes, that they would see the glory of Christ. Shine light. You're able to do that. Shine light into blind eyes today so that many can be redeemed, so that hardened hearts can be softened, and so that the gospel can be accepted today. Inform us, O oh Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.